Does scripture prove itself to be the word of God? This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to another episode. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so for our devoted listeners out there, we are recording this on a Friday night. This is our third take now due to system failures and various things. By system uh, failure, you mean me. I am a system failure. Well, it's because you use a Mac. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah, probably is. It's a, also an eight-year-old Mac now. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm over here, like, you know, I'm on Windows <laughs> and just cruising along like it's nobody's business. Got three monitors going and just everything is perfect. We get and it. Then, You're a better person than me. <laughs> well, I mean, as much as I can say, you know, being a good, consistent Calvinist. So what is this, Caleb? <laughs> uh, at this point, I'm questioning a lot about what this is. This is Bobcast. You're the Bob Squad, and we are the Bob Speakers. Yeah, I am Andrew Smith. And I am Caleb Castro, I think. I mean, as much as we can be sure of anything. So, we are going back to where we used to be. We are in the wonderful works of God. So we're getting into chapter 7, not to be confused with the type of bankruptcy. Ha! We're talking about the Holy Scriptures. We've been sort of building up to this point, as you can probably tell by now, if you've been with us in Wonderful Works of God, there is a ongoing progression and a build off of what's come before. We've been through general revelation, we've been through special revelation, and now we are into the Scriptures. Some of the question that Bob is getting at here is, you know, how do you go from the revelation of God, from God, to a book to these writings that we call collectively Holy Scripture or the Bible? That's a big question. I think even if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian a long time, these are probably questions you've had to wrestle with or maybe still wrestle with. You know, what is the Bible? Why does the Bible matter? Why do we hold it as highly as we do? How did we get the books we have and not other books? And these are all questions that Bob Inc. takes up in this chapter. He walks through many of these issues. Issues that were obviously big in his time with the onset of modernity. But they remain big questions now. And questions that Christians and non-Christians alike have to deal with, have to wrestle with. I mean, for a lot of non-Christians, atheists, what have you, this is usually one of their main points of objection. Well, why should I care about the Bible? Was the Bible... It's just another book, or it's corrupted, or whatever other things people say about it. Right. We can put it into also the form of a question, uh, maybe into two questions. How do you prove that Scripture is the Word of God, that it actually is from God? Or more accurately, why is the Bible the Word of God? Because we aren't really the ones that do the proving of it. We don't prove what it is. Does Scripture prove itself to be the Word of God? And that's what, uh, I mean, Bob Inc. is merely pointing out the relationship then between what God says and does in Revelation and then this book. 
Right. So getting off here on the uh, the beginning of uh, page 79, uh, the first page of chapter 7, this is precisely how he starts it uh, in this first big paragraph here. It is important to understand the relationship between Revelation and Scripture. On the one hand, there is an important difference between them. But we don't want to draw so much of a difference to separate Revelation and Scripture, to make them totally different things, as if Scripture itself, the book with the written word, is just a book, as if it's just a human compilation. And on the other hand, we don't want to put it as if the Bible, the Word of God, is just something that God dropped from heaven into your lap. Yeah, or that it was completely, like, unknown, unrelated to the human authors. These are both errors that people make concerning the doctrine of Scripture, and they're both ones that Bob Inc. addresses in this chapter. So getting into this relationship between Revelation and Scripture, one of the obvious things, or at least it's obvious when you stop to think about it, Revelation precedes Scripture. So God spoke and God acted before it was written down in Scripture. You know, Bob Inc. sets as the starting point of the authorship of Scripture, where most of the Christian tradition has, which is with Moses, well... If you look at where Moses actually falls in the story, he doesn't even appear until the second book. There was a lot of things going on. God saying things, God doing things. There's creation, there's fall, there's, you know, the flood, there's Abraham, and there's all these other things on before Moses that Moses documents. That revelation occurred before, but it's not inscripturated, is the word often used. It's not written down. It's not a book until later. Yeah, when you think about it, and if you go back into the prior episodes, God is doing things always. God is doing things in history and in creation. So things are being worked out for his purposes on a horizontal scale in this world. The Bible uh, and the things recorded in it aren't just some abstract, nice little narratives or stories or folk tales, mythologies or whatever. They're actually set against a real context and background. At the same time, all this stuff that's occurring uh, is not just simply history. We're talking about what scripture has to be a redemptive history, a history of salvation. This is a divine recording of history. For instance, in Joshua 4, the parents are instructed to tell the story. They're instructed to teach their children. This is what you would call oral tradition. At the time that these events in the Bible were occurring, they weren't necessarily written down immediately, but were passed along. They were proclaimed from one generation to the next, and from one neighbor to another neighbor, and from the people of God to the surrounding Gentiles. Now, people can look at this, and they can use that as perhaps a basis for questioning this relationship between Scripture and Revelation. And Boving talks about this. He says that some not only distinguish Revelation and Scripture, but actually segregate the two. Basically, they make Scripture incidental and defective. They take it away from actually being revelation or containing revelation to it's just a fallible, potentially corrupt, potentially inaccurate human recording of God's revelation. And this leads to overly naturalistic and mechanical views of the Bible. And more importantly, I mean... Doctrinally speaking, it denies God's providential preservation of his word. It denies things like inerrancy and infallibility, uh, which are very important as we recognize authority in Scripture and that it is actually binding and that it is actually the true and reliable and accurate word of God. And this is what Scripture says it is. It says of itself, as we'll get into more here in a moment, 
It is the word of God. It testifies to this fact itself. Yeah, and you used the word mechanically there a moment ago. Now, just as way of a illustration, maybe you would know what I'm talking about uh, if you grew up with this as well, Andrew and uh, some of our listeners. When I was younger, you know, I was raised in a charismatic church. The idea of scripture being written was pretty much God by the Holy Spirit goes and possesses the person. The eyes roll back or something and, you know, they just totally blank out or whatever. And they're just, you know, just writing the word of God just directly. Or perhaps they're literally just turning into, well, basically an, like an automaton, uh, like a robot just going and jotting down whatever God is saying to them in their mind at that moment without any thought or control over themselves. Yeah, but if you even read the text, I mean, they don't really support this kind of idea. For instance, you can read Paul's letters and he's greeting people by name, people he knows, people he's seeing, people he wants to see. People who have even done him wrong, he's recording all these things. There's a very human aspect to it. Paul retains agency here. He retains action on his own part, even though he is doing so under the activity of the Holy Spirit and writing down what God has purpose to set forth in writing, to set forth in Scripture. Yeah, so there's actual people involved then, which we will get into a little bit more later on but this is just all to emphasize as Bobbing says at the end of the second paragraph on page 80 the writing of scripture is making permanent the spoken word there's things that have been going along orally there are things that god is doing in history but it is making it documented and he is overseeing that documentation or or superintending it this gets into the next section where Bavink treats scripture self-attestation. What does the Bible say about itself and what's in it? You see this throughout all of scripture. You have prophets that are commanded to set down what is said in writing. You have many instances where you see this in the scripture. It says, the Lord said. So who is writing is saying that they are documenting what the Lord said. They're aware of where it's coming from. They're aware of the source. And then this continues on into the New Testament. You have how Jesus and the apostles use Old Testament texts. They use the phrase we often see, it is written. And they're appealing to that authoritatively. Uh, they also, in doing so, they're recognizing the Old Testament as an organic unity. There's verses about in the New Testament about Scripture. John 10.35 talks about how the Scriptures cannot be broken. Bavink uses that. He uses, of course, the famous verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, talking about all of the Scriptures being good for their various purposes. So as the Old Testament is this authoritative document, this organic unity, the New Testament is a part of that, too. It's continuing that as building upon it. So Jesus chose these apostles, and we see this, for instance, in the Great Commission, to be his witnesses. He gives them special graces and powers, and then most of all, it is the Holy Spirit who testifies through them in a unique, in a special way. But it's important that there be this unity and that there be this continuity between the scriptures, because, for instance, if Christ fulfills this promise to Abraham, this needs to be recorded, this needs to be documented, this needs to be disseminated. People need to know the promise to Abraham was through you, through Abraham, all the nations of the world 
will be blessed. So this revelation has to come in a form that it becomes available to all the nations. It has to be written down. It has to be copied. Eventually it has to be translated so that it can get to the nations this news that so deeply affects them. Yes. And I, I think it's also an interesting that we're, we're seeing in the New Testament when you're speaking of the continuity. There is a recognition that when Paul is going and writing these epistles, there is an acknowledgement of what we call the Old Testament as the word of God. You have some sort of recognition then in the New Testament authors going and speaking of the Old Testament as uh, authoritative scripture. And Bob here cites Matthew 4, 4, or it is written in John 7, 38, the scripture has said in Hebrews 3, 7, the Holy Ghost says, there is the understanding that the Old Testament is the word of God. And it has been not just passed along in oral form at this point, but uh, it has been inscripturated, it has been written down, and is uh, drawn upon, cited by the various New Testament authors as such. Moreover, you're also seeing that these Old Testament scriptures then, with the coming of Christ, are then being interpreted and proclaimed through the lens now of Christ's coming and who he is after his life, death, and resurrection and ascension in that Jesus himself uh, would attest that the Psalms were written of him. You know, you'll have the author of Hebrews in the opening chapter, as we've cited before, speak of how in the former days the Lord used many diverse ways to have the word proclaimed, but in these latter days it is through Christ Jesus the word. We also need to recognize, though, that Jesus, at least humanly speaking, did not sit down and write out a book. He entrusted this revelation of himself to the apostles, to these human authors, to write down what happened concerning him, write down what he taught, and disseminate it to the world. As Boving says, he chose, called, and qualified his apostles to go in the midst of the world particularly after his departure, to be his witnesses. There's this idea of a witness. There's this idea of testimony. It came then through the apostles. It comes to us now through the scriptures and those who proclaim, read, share, publish, otherwise disseminate the scriptures. It is revelation as it's been preserved for us and for the church in all times, in all places. Yeah, God was providing the means and for the word to be spoken from person to person, first and foremost from his witnesses, those apostles, and to those in Jerusalem, spreading outwards into Samaria, and then to the other corners of the earth. And in this, you know, Luke chapter 1 gives a bit of an insight then in the oral to written process. Luke says in his introduction, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke is going and interviewing eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. He's going and assessing, evaluating oral accounts, and it's not impossible to conceive, other written documents at the time, not necessarily Q, a Q gospel, but the possibility of someone having written something down, he reviews them, and he compiles this information guided by the spirit, the supervision, the superintendence of God in the whole process and writes it down in, in a particular perspective, different than, say, how Matthew or John had written down their accounts, giving kind of a different snapshot of the gospel of Christ. 
we have this clear, preserved, written revelation. It sure beats the telephone game. If you were a kid, you might have played the telephone game. Everybody gets in a circle. The first person in the circle, you know, will say a sentence or something. It has to be passed all the way around the circle. And by the time it gets to the end of the circle, it's just been completely butchered. We weren't reliant on oral tradition. God has provided a way for the scriptures to be written down and to be faithfully transmitted and faithfully translated. So, because, for instance, not everyone speaks Greek or Hebrew. Even then, not everybody spoke Greek and Hebrew. So the scriptures can be translated into the tongues of the people who need to hear it, who need to read it. Bobbing gives an additional insight then to that process even further, Andrew. You remember there on the bottom of page 82, you know, where he was talking about how God is equipping his witnesses for the task. He gives an example from uh, John 14, 26 and onwards, where Jesus had explicitly told his followers that when the Spirit comes, he would bring the things that he taught them to their remembrance. He would guide them into truth by the Spirit of truth. And so ultimately, he says, it is not the apostles themselves who witness of Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then is the the testifier, the, the one that is uh, really proclaiming, yes, through human vessels, but it is the Spirit who testifies of the Son and the Son who has testified of the Father. And that's a good segue into where Bob Inc. goes next, starting on page 84, talking about inspiration. Now, Bob Inc. uses here kind of an interesting example to flesh out this idea of inspiration. He talks about hypnosis, this idea that we can be subjected to another's thoughts and influences apart from our own action. We can do so unaware. We can do so without realizing it. He uses another similar example, the idea of how one might be influenced like by demons, by evil spirits. Or he uses another example here, talking about genius, talking about great art, talking about thought, talking about poetry, and how they testify to these invading flashes of insight. This is inspiration in maybe more of a generic sense, but we're basically something comes to a person and maybe they don't even realize it, but it's something unique, something brilliant, something outside of and beyond them that more or less invades, comes into them, comes to them. Yeah, and he says this isn't necessarily even always a positive thing. He gives the examples then of the evil spirits. From Mark one twenty four. it is the unclean spirit who speaks through the possessed man and who recognizes Jesus as being the Holy One of God. Then he moves on to speak of other means in which men can be influenced by the spirit, yeah, such as artistry. So the sort of inspiration we're talking about when we're dealing with Scripture is we're talking the inspiration of God, particularly the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's not, as we talked about earlier, for instance, thinking about Pentecostalism, this ethereal, out-of-body experience. How does God work in the world? How does God operate in the world? Well, if you've been with us through all our talks of general and special revelation— God is operative by his spirit in creation. You see this, for instance, in Acts 17, 28, where Paul is at Mars Hill, and he talks about in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Now, everybody has a certain degree of inspiration of this operation. It's not the same as inspiration as received by the apostles and the prophets, but what we do have, you know, how the spirit illumines our hearts to understand, it can serve as 
clarification and explanation and sort of help us to understand the kind of inspiration that God did give to them and that God was, you know, even through their seemingly, you know, normal human actions and whatnot, communicating special revelation. Bavink makes here a distinction between the Spirit's operation in the world and the church on one hand, which is to speak of being led by the Spirit, versus what happened with what happened to the prophets and apostles being moved by the Spirit. There's a more direct, invasive degree of action on the part of the Spirit when moving on the apostles and the prophets and in the creation of Scripture. A more technical phrase of that, I guess, would be concursive operation. You'll find that specifically or clearer with the coming of the Holy Spirit in power after Pentecost. Whereas before, in a certain manner, because the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ had not yet come in the Old Testament, that's where you see the various manners in which God is revealing himself through theophanic appearances through dreams and such but you you notice that those things uh diminish by the time you get into the new testament you're seeing the lord very much with these new testament writers working concurrently in them and through them yeah you have this idea of concursus of divine activity but working together with the human author's lives and actions and experiences this being a concept popularized, for instance, by B.B. Warfield and A.A. Hodge, uh, who wrote on the subject in Old Princeton, if you're interested in reading, studying more on that sort of thing. We've spoken of before in our episode on the miracles, how there's a manner in which we could speak of inspiration in the general sense of God in his church, where, for example, the preacher, the man in the pulpit can in a manner be said to be prophesying. That was, in fact, the the older terminology by some of the Puritans. Uh, You might even know of a title by William Perkins, The Art of Prophecy, where he's actually speaking of the proclamation of the Word of God. Now, we know in sermons, someone is not just going and reading uh, an epistle, just every single word, and hey, that's the sermon, but virtually interpreting it, commenting on it, and expositing it to those in the pew. Those in the pew are understanding it, are writing down their notes. Well, this is the word of God going out by the Spirit. That's a good illustration for the distinction then between Scripture and uh, Revelation, but as well as the bridge in between them of the witnessing of God. It's occurring through a manner in which the Lord is working by His Spirit, by inspiration, whether through the means of, yes, that sermon, through Bible tracts, through the writing of, say, a theologian or whatever. They're not writing Scripture, but they are, we can say, being faithful to the Word of God. They are expositing in godliness and in truth. The Holy Spirit is at work and is edifying, and in some way, especially in the church where there's sanctification occurring, there is the means of grace going out and strengthening and enlivening the people. I think a good summary of this we see in question 155 of the Westminster Larger Catechism in the Answer, talking about how is the word made effectual to salvation. It says, The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convicting, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, 
of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So you have this work of the Spirit making the Word, not just the reading, but the preaching as well, this effectual means of grace, this effectual means by which the gospel does its work in the life of the Christian. Similarly, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 1, the first article on Scripture that speaks of, you know, drawing from Hebrews 1, uh, it pleased the Lord at uh, sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, so Revelation, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth. It was committed for writing, but for its purpose, as uh, the Confession says, for preserving in the propagation. And what we have occurring there in the sermon, for example, uh, is as Andrew has just said, but the propagating of the truth. And because we can't go and let the Presbyterian tradition have the, the final say on that, you know, we could also point towards Belgian Confession, Article 2 and 3, where Article 2 says, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word. For what? Maybe for our, our salvation as much as we need in this life for his glory and for uh, that which is necessary for salvation. And then Article 3, again, it is for our special care for us and our salvation. So we've begun to dive into what Bob Inc. is looking at here in Chapter 7, talking about the scriptures. We're going to pick up here again next time, talking about the humanity of scripture, the human agency, and what that means and perhaps some ways that's been abused and some of the problems that's caused in Bob Inc.'s day and that continue into ours. But for now, we're going to go ahead and stop. We're out of time. We thank you for listening to Bobcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something. As always, if you like what you've heard, leave us a five-star review. It helps us to get the word out. Let your friends know. Let your family know. Let random strangers on the street know. Hopefully you don't get maced. But get the word out about Bobcast and let people know we're here. Any final thoughts, Caleb? In that manner, not even just Bobcast for the sake of Bobcast, but as a tool for aiding in the understanding of the Word of God and His teachings, His doctrines, and the theology of the things pertaining to God. Yep. Yep. So, tote zines? So, tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.